Thanks be to God. I love it whenever Peter or Paul breaks into worship at the end of a, of a uh, writing. It's just so, so beautiful. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, once again, uh, welcome to St. Thomas's Church. Um, not only are we overjoyed to all get um, one extra hour of sleep, but we're also overjoyed as we continue to walk through this sermon series where we look at what it means to love your neighbor. And uh, just for the purposes of this, uh, of this uh, sermon series this fall, um, I really believe that we could sum up the entirety of the Christian message in those three words, love your neighbor. Because it, it's not just instructive for us on how to, to love our neighbors. It first and foremost means how Christ and, and the Father and the Spirit love us. But last week, we sort of turned our, our glimpse from looking at our neighbors out in the world to looking at our neighbors sitting right beside each other um, in this room as we look to, to see that our neighbors just aren't our, our fellow human beings out in the world, but they are brothers and sisters in Christ, in our church. And so the scripture for today focuses on this and it helps us to see more clearly what it looks like to love your neighbor sitting right beside you, your church member. Now, in order to understand uh, the full power and, and the full message of, of what our reading says, especially when we focus on things like love and, and earnest love and hospitality, I think we need to back up and, and I think that we need to look at not just what these words are saying, we will do that, but first we need to understand who wrote them. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit wrote them, but the way the Holy Spirit wrote them was through the person of Peter, through his life, through his experience in the mysterious way that, yes, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but yet he works through ordinary people. So I want to begin this morning by telling you a story. It's a story about Peter, the man that wrote this letter. Well, if I'm going to be, well, you know, let's be honest, it's, it's a story about Peter and Jesus, right? Jesus is kind of important to this whole thing. So what is Peter's story? Well, maybe some of you know it, maybe some of you don't. But, but before Jesus showed up on the scene, Jesus is just a practical man. He's a Jew by birth. He grew up in a Jewish family. But he didn't take his faith too seriously. He had no problems putting aside his faith's religious purity laws mixed with the Gentiles, mixed with those that weren't holy in order to make money. Peter was no holy man. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? Well, he goes to Peter. He calls Peter to follow him. He gives him the undeserved blessing of being his disciple, of welcoming him into one of the twelve. Now, what does Peter do in response to this undeserved blessing? He uses every opportunity to misunderstand Jesus's actions and teachings. Jesus would heal. Peter would have no idea what is going on. Jesus would restore sight to the blind. Peter would have no idea what's, what's happening. Peter would uh, do teachings that seem to, to come from God himself. Peter would have no idea what was going on. And how did Jesus respond to this? He patiently explains all he's doing. 
And he even fills Peter with the same power to heal and proclaim God's love and sends him out on mission. What does Peter do in response? Even though he watched Jesus do miracle after miracle, he should know who Jesus Christ is. He should, that is the son of God, the long promised Messiah. When Jesus tells him about the cross and about the resurrection, Peter not only does not understand what, what Jesus plainly told him, but he rebukes Jesus. He says, Jesus, you are wrong. Your plan is terrible. You're a fool. And how does Jesus respond to this insult? Well, first, Jesus lovingly tells him that he's acting like Satan. Okay, out of love. So if, so if I ever tell you you're acting like Satan, it's out of love. I promise. But more importantly, after he wakes Peter up, Jesus uses this time to patiently instruct Peter on the cost of what it means to follow him. And Jesus even took this arrogant man to the top of a mountain and showed Peter and James and John his glory and his perfection and his beauty. Grace upon grace. And so what is Peter's response after this? He decides to have a debate with the other disciples of who's the best one. And of course, Peter was making a strong argument that he was. That he would be the first in God's kingdom. And so Jesus hears this. And he called Peter to continue to follow him. And he patiently explained that real leadership is not to lord it over, over others, but to serve them. But Peter still had the worst to offer. He saved the worst of what he had for the night Jesus was arrested. You see, that night um, over the Lord's Supper, where he brings in all of his disciples and shows them hospitality and love, Jesus tells Peter that it is God's plan that Jesus is arrested and taken away and put to death. But on the third day, he will rise again. And that's how the world will be saved. But when the time comes, Peter ignores the teachings of his Savior and puts his own plan into practice, even by attacking those who come to arrest Jesus with a sword. Then to save his own skin, Peter runs away, even though just an hour earlier, just hours earlier, he promised Jesus that he would never leave him, that he would even die with him. But of course, it doesn't end there. Even though Jesus has warned Peter, he said, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And even with this warning, once again, even with Peter's most adamant rejection, Lord, I will never abandon you. I will never deny you. I will go to death with you if that's what it requires. Even with that warning, Peter does it anyway. And he ends that night by swearing on God's name 
I swear to you on God's name, I do not know that man, Jesus. So how does Jesus handle this betrayal? After his resurrection, Jesus comes and seeks Peter out to condemn him, to set him straight, to uh, bring the full wrath of his disobedience and failure upon him. No. He comes to him, breathes the Holy Spirit onto him and says, peace be with you. Later, he finds Peter again, makes him breakfast. And he tells Peter that despite all of his failure, Peter is still his chief shepherd on earth. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And so it was this man who 30 years later after he saw Jesus rise into heaven, wrote this letter that we're reading. So when he writes, of course, this whole letter, but we're just focusing on these two verses right here. When he writes these verses, eight and nine, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. These just aren't intellectual concepts. These just aren't philosophies that he's pulled out of various uh, philosophical and faith traditions. And he's trying to apply them in some cold laboratory. No, he's simply calling on our brothers and sisters to love each other as Christ has loved him. Keep loving each other earnestly, he he writes, well, the word love here, of, of course, is the word agape. And it's this Greek word, which is the purest form of love. It's a love that seeks nothing in return. It's a love that loves the object just because the object is. But the word earnestly, it's not just one thing to love. It's to, he calls us to love earnestly. And once again, the Greek word here means to love constantly, to love with endurance. Theologian Ed uh, Clowney says it's, it's, a, it's, it's a stretchy love. I love that. It's a, it's a stretchy love. The longer you have it, the more it stretches, not just in length, but in depth. But why are we to love earnestly? Well, he tells us because he's experienced it. Why? Because this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. Every possible sin, the small ones and the big ones. And, and again, this Greek word, sometimes I, I, I wish we could, wish we all knew Greek could make this so much more fun. But it covers. Now, that, that English word doesn't capture the power of this word. It means to hide it so that no trace of it can be found. My son, David, is a great cousin, and he loves to cover himself in some sort of blanket and become a blanket monster and chase my niece and nephew around the house. And they squeal and they holler and they love it. But they, they know who that is, right? It's just covering him, right? That's not what he's talking about here. It's not just kind of secretly hidden, but it might you can sort of make out the features. In fact, Calvin 
says that this verb means that Christ comes and buries our sins. Buries them never to be found again. And so what is, what is Peter getting at here? Well, what he's doing is he's simply sharing the exactly or the exact love that Jesus gave him. And we told that story because what we see is we see episode after episode after episode. And I've given you the abbreviated version. But what we see is that we see Jesus loving Peter with agape. Earnestly, consistently, he's stretching his love over every single one of Peter's failures, not holding them against him. And he's stretching that love deeper and deeper with every failure. Jesus's great love for, 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 for Peter buried Peter's sins against him. And they did not deter. They did not stop Jesus from bringing Peter to himself, even though Peter did everything in his power to make Jesus hate him. But it, it doesn't end there. Peter just doesn't end at verse 8. Look at what he says in a verse, verse 9. We're called to show hospitality. Well, why is that? Because Jesus Christ showed hospitality to Peter himself. Once again, what does hospitality mean? Well, the Greek word literally means, it's so beautiful. The Greek word literally means to love a stranger as a brother. Loving a stranger as a brother. Now, we are pretty good at hospitality. You know, it's, it's uh, I, I'm kind of old fashioned. I don't like to watch Christmas movies until December the 1st, right? But of course, one of the great rituals in the Smith household is not just Elf, right? It's not just a Christmas carol. It is also National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, right? And so if you've ever watched that, I encourage you to watch that if you want to get a glimpse of hospitality, right? Um, all of these relatives, which are really strangers in, in, in your home, right? They, they descend upon you. Cousin Eddie comes in, you know, and, and he empties it. Well, I'll just leave, leave it there. And so, but it's, all of a sudden, your whole, whole world is taken over. And these people come into your life to sort of drain you of life. But as good as we are at, at hospitality, we're nothing compared to Middle Eastern pe people. Even Southerners aren't as good as Middle Eastern people at hospitality. Sorry to let us know this, okay? Um, if you've ever been to any kind of Eastern or a Middle Eastern wedding or whatever it might be, um, you just are overwhelmed with just generosity and love. But I think the most extreme example that we've had within the past 20 years um, is that if you've sort of followed the, uh, the story of uh, U.S. Navy SEAL Marcus Luttrell, and of course he was in a movie called Lone Survivor. And if you don't know the story, essentially he went out and was attacked by the uh, Taliban with his four-man team. He was the only one to uh, survive. And he sought refuge within an Afghani village after his entire team was killed. And not only did they give him the best food and clothing and housing that their small, poor village could, could offer, but when the Taliban came looking for him, they threatened to fight the Taliban to protect their guest. You are safe here. You are safe here. 
And so when we look at not just Jesus' patience, but how Jesus welcomed Peter, who habitually and intentionally failed him, he welcomed him into his life. He loved, he loved this stranger as a brother. And he did this even though he knew Peter would ignore and betray and abandon him. Jesus gave Peter all he had to give him life, even his own life. Now, before jumping into how we apply this to us at St. Thomas's Church, I want to stop. I want to pause. I just want to jump over the good news that we've spoken here. What great love does our Savior, Jesus Christ, have for us? Who are we in this? We're Peter's. We're Peter's. We're constantly failing, constantly making pledges, constantly making promises. But our Lord Jesus Christ patiently brings us through, patiently forgives us, and lets his love stretch over even the greatest of our sins. And of course, our immediate response when sin gets the best of us is that Jesus will grow tired of us. I can't fail him this many times. Surely his love for me will grow thin. Surely the blanket of his love can only stretch so far. And he'll let us go. We will wear out his patience. We will outstretch his love. But as we see here, this is impossible. And if you're curious about the Christian faith, if you're curious about who this God is, or if you're walking in full of sin and you've sinned over and over and over and over and over and over again, you're so frustrated with yourself and you know that Jesus won't give you one more chance, that you've outstretched his love, the good news that I have for you is that that is not true. He loves you. He forgives you. And he welcomes you just like he's welcomed me. So with that foundation, with that truth, with that person who's writing these words, let's look at what that means for us. But it's only with this good news foundation that we can begin to even begin to live into what Peter's saying. So to put it as simply as possible. As Jesus has loved Peter, which means as Jesus has loved and is loving us, we should love each other. We should let love for each other cover the multitude of sins that we sin against each other, big and small. When we started St. Thomas's almost seven years ago, or just over seven years ago, we designed it from the beginning to be an incredibly small church which, which focuses on relationships and focuses on running on volunteers, not on staff. Now, there are lots of reasons for this, but one of them is that in this type of environment, it's only here that I would argue that true Christian life can be experienced in its fullness. Now, by the full Christian life, what I do not mean is harmony. What I mean is, when we have this kind of model of church, it, for, it forces us to deal with each other. It forces us to put up with each other. Every person to your right, to your left, 
behind you and certainly in front of you, not just to me, but like right here, this guy is an expert sinner. And our primary driving motive, even those of us that by God's grace have been born again, brought into his family, our primary driving motive in our lives is ourselves. And of course, we all know that where two or three are gathered in uh, in Jesus's name, Jesus is in the midst of them. Why is that? Because when two or three people are with each other, they will find a way to hurt each other. And Jesus needs to be in there to fix that. Right. That's (laughs) that's what it means to live in this church. In, in fact, theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, he was a German the- theologian in the mid 20th century. He was executed for trying to have Hit- Hitler killed. Uh, but he wrote a book about a, a Christian co- community and what it looks like. And what he says is that the only real Christian or, or only a real Christian community exists when there's friction, when there's tension. When they sin against each other. It's only when a brother or sister is a burden, he writes, that he or she is really a brother or or sister. You're just acquaintances before that, right? A church that's not really living into the power of, of the gospel is one where everybody are polite acquaintances and we all get along just fine. But when we are forced to, or or when we begin to serve each other, love each other, bear with one another's sins, we begin to realize, oh, this is what Jesus felt. This is how we can live. This is how we can grow. Bonhoeffer called this the ministry of bearing with each other. And what he writes is he writes actually something incredibly fascinating. He says, as opposed to trying to like, See this as a negative thing, us sinning against each other and and us having to forgive each other and grow with each other and have patience with each other. He says we should give thanks for them. Why? Because it shows us what real love looks like and how Christ loves us. One quick example here is not only do we help each other on Sundays, but uh, we have this ministry of what we call life groups where we come to, to together once a week or once every other week. And different people host in their homes and cook food. And how many of us who are in life groups have experienced this? You left work early or stayed up late the night before to prepare your home, clean the house, made the food, wash the dishes, clean the bathrooms, set everything up, made it all look nice and clean and nice, only to have at the last minute over half the people just cancel on you. Some good reasons, some bad reasons. Now, it may seem like a small thing, but if we're honest, these are like little cuts on our skin, on our our heart, aren't they? Don't they appreciate me? Don't they understand what I've gone through? And we begin to grumble. We begin to get upset. But you see, what this passage is telling us in the midst of this is that here is an opportunity not to condemn our brothers and sisters, but to dive deeply into what Peter knew, and that's that Christ had been so patient with him, so loving with him, that his love covered these little cuts, covered these big stabs, and provided an environment where people could show grace to each other. 
and where people could welcome each other into their lives. Not because the people that I'm inviting in are safe, but because they are my brothers and sisters in Christ and I will love them. So I end with this. As we seek to love our neighbor, not just out in the world, but right here in this room, right here in this church. When we begin to grumble in our hearts because they have failed us one more time, right? Why can't they just learn to show up on time? Why can't they just learn to volunteer and to show up when they volunteer? Why can't they just blah, 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 whatever it is. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that because you and I are blessed with the opportunity to love others as Christ has loved us. To welcome them into our lives. To, to let God's love, which has been so generous to us, stretch out over them. And in doing so, we come to know more deeply how much Christ loves us. And they come to know how much deeply Christ loves them. So, above all. Keep loving each other earnestly, since love buries a multitude of sins. Love strangers as brothers and do it without grumbling. Why? Because that's how our Savior has loved us. And this is good news for us sinners indeed. Amen.